Okay. Good morning, everyone. Okay, if you've got a Bible, could you please go to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20. We, um, last week we started a new sermon series um, called Free to Live based on the Ten Commandments, looking at the Ten Commandments um, in God's um, Word. We found that the Ten Commandments are these things that many people know or have at least heard of, the idea of the Ten Commandments. They contain around 300 words in our English translation and they are some of the most significant ever written because they have impacted society, our Western society, form the basis of law um, in many, many countries throughout centuries and so they are hugely significant. Yet we also know that there are many people who don't actually know them. Even Christians, can you name the Ten Commandments? A little challenge to yourself while your mind's wandering during the sermon, which I'm sure it won't, but if it does, you can try and doodle. Do, we know, do I know all ten of these commandments? Can I write them all down? And last week we started with um, the first one. Now, the ten commandments have been significant throughout um, the centuries of the church, going back a few hundred years. These were used for basic discipleship. They were taught to believers to learn the ten commandments as a way to live. Alongside that, they were taught the um, Lord's Prayer, as a way to pray, and the Apostles' Creed, which is what we need, uh, which is kind of sums up our beliefs, which we're going to hopefully look at over the next 12 months, use of those things. The Lord's Prayer next, and then the Apostles' Creed. Um, as we're studying the Ten Commandments, I want to recommend some books. I did this last week. I'll just do it again if you missed it. Um, there were uh, three books if you want to get into it. The first one was this green one called The Ten Commandments, handily by Kevin DeYoung, which is a really good entry-level book if you just want to Get, learn a bit more about the Ten Commandments. I recommend this to anyone. Just read it. Very easy to read. Not usually long chapters. A great intro to the Ten Commandments. So there's that one, which is there. The second one was uh, Written in Stone by Philip Graham Ryken, which is also an excellent book, which I um, thoroughly recommend. A little bit more wordy than that one, a little bit longer, but definitely not out of the reach of most of you. So that's a fantastic one. I gave away a couple of copies of that last week if you want to get into that to ask around, borrow one of those. And the last one, if you're really up for a challenge, is called The Ten Commandments by Thomas Watson. This was written in 1692, I think. So it's an old one. I'm that way through. It's taken a while. I'm halfway through now, but I'm loving it. It's old stuff, old Puritan writing, which is really insightful, uh, deep, makes you think. So that's worth it. If you want a challenge, read that one. by Thomas Watson. I've also got two green ones to give away today that's are free. So if you haven't read this one and you fancy it, you don't want to pay for it, come and get them there. They are free to you. Why don't take one, read it, pass it on to a friend. Oh, you gentlemen, Andrew. Had it your reading list, Jess, for university. Okay, let's have a little quick word about the law in God's word because the Ten Commandments are part of the law. The law is a reference to many things in the Bible. It's a reference to the first five books of the Bible, which are collectively known as the law. It's a reference to the commandments we find within there. In the law, particularly the book of Leviticus, you ever read that? It's basically just lots of commands from God, and the Ten Commandments are part of that. You find them in the book of Exodus. They're also repeated again in the book of Deuteronomy. But the law as a whole can be split into sort of three groups. You have the ceremonial law, which is to do with all the sacrifices and the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood, all those kind of things. And then we have the civil law, which is how the nation of Israel was governed as a nation. And then we have the moral law, which is basically how we live, which is where we find the Ten Commandments. And the purpose of this law, as we read the Bible, why is the law in there? What good is it for us? How do we learn from it? Well, it shows us how to live, number one. 
It shows us this is the way God would have you live. This is the way God would have you govern your life. The second thing the laws does is an interesting one. It restrains sin. It, it basically stops you doing bad things. Because if you know that you do something, if you break a law and something bad's going to happen, you're less likely to do it. You all know this because we all tend to drive the speed limit, don't we? Why? We don't want to get caught in three points on our license. So the law restrains our bad behavior, restrains sin. And the final thing the law does is it shows us a need for a savior. Because when we examine the law, we suddenly realize we can't keep it. We are all flawed men and women. We all realize that actually we cannot live up to it. So it means we need help. We need someone outside. We need someone to save us. And this was fulfilled uniquely in Jesus Christ. He was the one who came, fulfilled the Lord. He was the one who came and saved us. And he fulfilled a ceremonial law. The sacrifices in the temple. Jesus came and we read in the book of Hebrews, he was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So because of his sacrifice on the cross, we no longer need to do sacrifices. We no longer need to have them. So the ceremonial law in Christ is fulfilled. The civil law. The people of God are no longer one ethnic group in one particular place, in one particular country. They're actually spread out throughout the entire earth of all peoples, of all nations, of all tribes, in all countries. And so actually we are now governed by the laws of our nation. In here we are citizens of the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and we are part of that government. So we, we, we submit to those laws. So the moral law has been fulfilled because the church of Christ is now spread out everywhere. However, the moral law of how we are supposed to live is actually repeated again in the New Testament, many from the words of Christ himself, and so these are still binding on us today, which is why the Ten Commandments are so relevant to us, that we study them and look at them today because they are still applied to us here and now. So if you're in Exodus 20, let's quickly remind us the context of this passage that we're looking at. We've had creation. In, beginning in Genesis, where God created the heaven and earth and he put mankind in the garden, mankind sinned, we rebelled, we said no we don't want God, so we were removed from the garden and then God set a plan in motion to bring people back to himself. So he called a man named Abraham and he said I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and through you the whole nation, the whole world is going to be blessed. Abraham has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, who has 12 sons. They become the nation of Israel. The most famous of those sons really is Joseph. We know his story at the back end of Genesis. Particularly, they go down into Egypt at the end of Genesis and they grow into a mighty nation. So the, the promise of God is being fulfilled. Then God raises up a deliverer because they're in a slavery in Egypt because a new Pharaoh has come and he doesn't know God, doesn't know Moses, doesn't know what's happened. Um, and he, he, I'm sorry, didn't know Joseph, and then he um, enslaves them. So he sends Moses, and Moses says, let my people go. We have plagues. They leave. We have Red Sea. They go through it, and the people are now free. And they've come to the mountain, which God told Moses to bring them to, and say, they will worship me at this mountain. And so they are there before the mountain, and they, he speaks to them, and he gives them these commandments. And these commandments come in a context. They come in the context of freedom, because they are no longer slaves, the people of God. They've been brought out of Egypt, so they are free. So that's wonderful. They come in the context of God's great love for them. Because he says in Exodus 19, immediately prior to this passage, you are my treasured possession. I love you. I am for you. I want you to be my people. I brought you out of slavery because I set my love upon you. 
So he's speaking to free people who are objects of his love. They haven't earned it. They don't deserve it. But he has chosen to love them. And in that context, he reveals himself to them. So he's revealed his loving kindness. He also reveals his holiness. Because God is holy. He is totally pure. He is other. And on the mountain where they've come to, there is fire and smoke and lightning. Um, And the voice comes from the cloud, which shows the presence and the glory and the holiness of God. And he spoke the first commandment, which we looked at last week, where he says, you will have no other gods before me. And the context there was the whole, they'd come out of Egypt, which had many gods, all different gods for different things, the sun and the Nile and Pharaoh himself was a god and, and life and death, everything had a god. And he said, no, none of those. You will only have one God. And we've seen that fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who revealed himself, the one true God. And he said, you shall have no other God for me, and we are to worship him alone. And so we're now coming to the second commandment. So if we put it up, I'm just going to read what comes next. If you found this, we're going to look at verses, uh, I think it's 4, 5, and 6. So it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that is on heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Okay, second commandment. The first commandment was a warning against worshipping the wrong God. The second commandment is about worshipping the right God the right way. You got the right God, commandment number one, no other God before me, but now you have to worship him the right way. And he explains what that looks like. So, we've got four things. We've got a rule, a reason, a warning, and a promise. Let's go through them. Number one, a rule. First uh, verse and a half says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or is the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the rule basically says, You cannot make a physical object in any way to try and bring yourself closer to God. You can't make a physical object in any way that represents God or establishes some kind of communion with God. That's what he's saying. That's not allowed. You're not allowed to make an idol which serves as a point or an object of worship. You're not allowed to represent anything in creation in such a way that you then get to a point of trying to worship it. And the, fun, the expressions it uses there is a kind of express the totality of this commandment. It says you're not allowed to anything that's on, in heaven above or on the earth below or the water under the earth. So it's trying to cover everything. Mankind is brilliant at making loopholes in laws. That's why they have to make laws and make more laws to cover loopholes that were found in the first law. So basically God is saying you can't make anything, anything created cannot be used as an object of worship. You cannot make an image of it and then worship it. And the context of this, of course, is Egypt. And if any of you studied Egypt at school or seen the Egyptian images of their gods with funny names... Because they all had sort of elements of creation in them. You took Horos, was one of their gods. It was a body of the man and a head of a falcon, a bird. There was Anubis, who had a body of a man and the head of a jackal. There was another one, Sakmet, which had a, uh, it was a female body, but the head was that of a lion, lioness. 
And so these were created things that were then used as objects of worship. So the context that they're coming out of is this for them would be incredibly familiar. They'd be like, well, I know what you're talking about because we've just seen temples and idols and we've been in a nation for over 400 years of our history where this has just been the culture. This is just normal for us. We know that there are idols. There are idols everywhere. People have to bow down to them and sacrifice and worship and temples and burn incense and bring offerings. This is just what life is like. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why would God have a problem with this? Why is he now saying, well, you've been like that. You've been in that culture. I've brought you out. You're now my people. You know I'm the one God because I saved you and I've made you that the first command. Why is this an issue? Well, the reason this is an issue is because idols, images, give us a skewed image of God which actually breaks the first commandment of worshipping the right God because it skews our image. Why? Because idols imply limitations. They imply a limitation. God is not limited. The Bible describes me God is spirit, which means he is all places everywhere. But the God is invisible as well. He can't be seen. The chapter 4 in Exodus 19 where they come to the mountain, there's this, the, the cloud comes down and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's smoke and there's fire. And actually God is not seen. He is just heard. God is invisible. So to make an image of him is to put limitations on who this God is. He is in all places at all times. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So you can't limit him By making an image of him. It immediately puts that on him. Idols also imply creation. Which means you you have to make an idol. You have to find some raw material. Stone or wood. And you have to then create it. It has to be made by man. Yet God is not created. He is eternal. And so as soon as you make an image of it and you start making something, you immediately put that imitation. It's now, actually, it's not God the creator. It's suddenly man the creator. I create this idol. I create this image. God has no beginning, no end. The third thing, images imply control. If I make an image of God, I can control it. I shape it the way I want it. I can set it up over here. If I don't like it, I'll move it and I'll go and put it over here. And I'm in charge. God's not in charge. I am in control. But yet we read God is sovereign over all things. He is the ruler of everything. Even in Israel's recent history, they've seen ten plagues come, which were specifically aimed at the gods of Egypt, and he defeated them one after the other. Then we've seen the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. You can't limit God. You can't try and control him. He's the one who controls all things. So that's the rule. The reason for it, number two, why? If we look at the back end of verse 5, it says, For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. And here the jealousy, mean, the word jealous means like a zeal, a burning passion, a burning passionate love is what he's saying. I am a jealous God. He has a holy jealousy about something that rightly belongs to him. Rightly belongs. It's not envy. And envy, being envious is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. When we're envious, we desire something that someone else has got. We are envious of their success or their money or their possessions or their relationships or their position or whatever. It doesn't belong to us. It's theirs. Jealousy is different. Jealousy is a burning passion for something that is actually rightly 
yours. The obvious illustration here is the love of a spouse for their partner. The husband for a wife, for instance. The husband should be rightly jealous for the love of his wife because it belongs to him and him alone. He is the one that she should look at and vice versa because they have made a covenant relationship together. It shouldn't be given to another one, a third party. If I go off and look at another one, my wife should be rightly jealous and say, actually, that doesn't belong to her. It belongs to me and me alone. And it's the same in this context. They are his people. He has chosen them. He has redeemed them. And he loves them. And he has freed them from slavery. And he has brought them out into kind of uh, this place, freedom. He said, I am your God. You are my people. You should have no other gods. And so he is jealous for that. And so if they start making idols and worshipping them and getting a skewed image, actually they're giving their love and their devotion and affection to something else, someone else that doesn't, doesn't deserve it. Then comes the warning. Number three, right at the end of verse five, it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Let's just unpick this. First of all, it says, visiting the iniquity. Iniquity, another word, um, depravity, perversion, sin. Some translations put that. And it's the implication of punishment because it begins, it says, visiting. So there's an implication of a punishment for breaking a rule, which we're all familiar with. When you break rules, there are consequences, there are punishment. Going back to that speeding illustration, you get caught speeding, what happens? You get a fine, you get points on your license, and you have to go to a speed awareness course. There are consequences. And he's saying he visits, visits the sin um, on those who break this command. And it says the punishment here is shown up to four generations. You have the father, the child, the grandchild, and the great-grandchild. When it describes the fathers, the children, the third and the fourth generation, that's what it's saying. And saying there is a punishment which goes on and on and on in that. And the point there is, one, there are consequences for sin. There are consequences for breaking the commandments there are consequences for doing things wrong and when we have a God whose standard is perfect holiness there are consequences for falling short of that and if we go to the end of that verse it uses more strong wording it says of those who hate me and so those who stand opposed to God those who choose to break his commandments the essence of what they're doing is showing a contempt and a hatred for the things and the ways of God when we break God's commandments, when we go against him, that is in essence what we're doing. That's rebellion. That's our problem. That's where it begins, the Christian message. We have a problem before a holy God because we are rebels. Now, what's, let's look at what this actually means, what it doesn't mean, and then what it does mean. What it doesn't mean is that if you sin, your great grandkids are going to get it. When you mess up, you think, well, if I have kids, and they have kids, and then the great grandkids that I may or may not meet... They're not going to get it in the neck because of something I've done. It's actually, if you go to the book of Ezekiel and look at the prophet there, he specifically deals with this, where he says, um, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon themselves, and the wickedness of the wicked will be on themselves. It basically means you're responsible for your own actions. That's what it's, that's what it's, so it's not saying that. What it is saying is that those who walk in the ungodly ways of their parents will be punished. And here's a kind of, there's something here for us all to take on board. And that is children copy their parents. Children copy their parents. 
generally speaking. If you're around small children long enough, they copy you. I was a, before I had kids, I was a school teacher, and I taught five-year-olds. And it didn't take them long to start copying me, my intonation, my tone of voice. Some of them could mimic me very well, <laughs> which is quite interesting watching a six-year-old come out do an impression of me. But they, they just copy. They look at you and they're saying, basically he's saying to this generation, he's saying, actually, the way you live will have implications on your children and their children and their children's children because it will just carry on. So how you live is important. If you break this commandment and you sin and you do this, guess what? Your kids are going to copy you. The kids are going to act like you. And so they're going to be guilty of their own sin, but they're going to be copying you. So you bear some responsibility in how you raise your children. Someone once told me before we had kids, they said, kids are sponges, then parrots. So they suck everything in like a sponge, and then they start parroting it out to you. And so the things that they say, you suddenly find them repeating back to you things they've said to you, which is infuriating in the most. And it's a, there's a warning here for us. There's a warning of the consequences of sin, which we are aware of, but there's a warning on how we raise our kids. Not just your own physical children, but the children you're around, the children you may have charge or responsibility for, the children in your life that you see, nieces and nephews and grandchildren, etc., and children of friends that you're just around. How you live, how you speak, how you act has an action on them. You can be a positive or a negative influence. And the warning here is if we are a negative influence, it has repercussions down the generation because they will learn our ways, they will copy it, and then they will pass it on to theirs. And on and on it goes, third and fourth generation. The final thing here, it says, is the promise. Verse 6, it begins with a but. So we've had all this. This is really bad, but, so it's something that's changing directions, and we need to take note of that. It's one of those things you kind of mark in your Bible. There's a change there, but, but it says, but, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The promise is more powerful than the warning. The promise is more powerful than the warning. It begins with um, this phrase, steadfast love. Steadfast just means fixed, immovable, determined, not subject to change. And this is the opposition for the punishment that came in the previous verse. It's saying we've now got the steadfast love of God, which is not going to move, is not going to change, is not going to budge. And this love is coming. And the, the, you can tell that one is more powerful than the others because one mentions third and fourth. What does this verse mention? Thousands. When you put them next to each other, there is no contest. Would you rather have three or four pounds or thousands of pounds? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? I'll have the thousands, thank you. And God is saying, yes, there are consequences for sin. There are, you've got to be aware of it. But my love swamps that. My love goes much greater than that. The thousands is effectively everlasting. It's so big compared to three and four. So three and four is a finite thing. The thousands representing something that is eternal and everlasting. So my love, my steadfast love just goes on forever and ever and ever. And those who are faithful will enjoy the steadfast love of God for eternity. And so the people of God are standing there and he has given them commandments. They are a free people and he's saying, don't have any other gods but me. I am the one true God. I am the one who saved you. All these false gods of Egypt have been defeated. They come to nothing. Look to me. 
And now he's saying, actually, this is, if you're going to love me and worship me, you need to worship me the right way, which means you don't get to build idols. You don't get to do that. You don't get back to your old ways that you've seen in Egypt. You're free. You're free from that. You don't have to go back to that. But the reality is, for the people of God, this was a reoccurring problem. This was something that just came back to them again and again. If you've ever read the book of Exodus, you only have to skip on a few chapters. And you get to Exodus 32, and you find the infamous incident. Some of you know what I'm referring to. What did they do? They made a golden calf. (laughs) They'd been out of Egypt like five minutes. God had saved them, dragged them out, appeared on the mountain like, wow, awesome. Said, don't do this. A few chapters later, they're going to Aaron (laughs) and saying, hey, build us an idol so we can worship it. And Aaron, godly man, he says, yeah, all right, give me all your gold. (laughs) And he builds an idol. And they all bow down and worship him. And Moses comes down the mountain and has the mother of all three counts. Like, what? Are you kidding me? Later we find, if you go to 1 Samuel 4, you find them with the Ark of the Covenant, which was the box they carried, which contained the Ten Commandments. They put the stones in there, among other things. And on the top was the mercy seat where kind of God's judgment was poured out and the blood was there, which turned it away so the people could be forgiven. And they used that. But they, 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 they turned that into a talisman. And they said, if we've got this in battle, we'll win. And they marched out of battle and think, we've got the Ark, we're going to win. And they got annihilated. Tens of thousands of soldiers died. And it's like, you don't get to make an object, an idol, and put all your faith and trust in that and not the one who's above it. Later still, we find in 2 Kings 9 and 10, there's a story of a guy called King Jehu, who is the king of Israel after the nations had split after the rule of Solomon. And it says he did well at first, because what he did was he destroyed all the false worship. He got rid of all the idols. He said, no, we're not going to have them. He tore down the the Baal uh, and Asherah poles and all those things. But God still had an issue. Why? Because there were still two golden calves which people used to worship God. You're worshipping the right God, but you're doing it in the wrong way. God said, he says, this, you don't get to make idols. I'm the right God. You need to worship me in the right way. You don't get to make images of me to others. Just a, an aside of that, one of the reasons God doesn't, get, uh, doesn't want us to make images of him, because guess what? He's already made images of himself. Who are they? You guys. God said, I will already make man in my own image. You don't need to make images of me. I've made them. And you're not to worship them, but they, are, they represent me in the world. And so, what, do we, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us now, hundreds, thousands of years later? How do we take this and apply this? Because I don't think many of you are tempted to go home and go into your sheds and get a bit of block of wood and draw a face on it (laughs) or something and set it up in the corner of the house and say, come on, kids, let's worship God together. That's not kind of what's on our way. So how do we go about worshiping the right God in the right way? Well, there's two things I want to put before you today. The first one is to be aware of your own idols. Be aware of your own idols. This command begins, if you look about the first word, it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And the reality is one of the things we are very, very good at is making idols. The reformer, John Calvin, in the 16th century wrote that our hearts are idol-making factories. 
And he wrote that 400 years ago. And you think, wow, that's insightful for 21st century England. Our hearts are idol-making factories. We take things we have made and then we bow down to them. What do we do? We make our own idols. They things, an idol is something you look to for salvation, to meet your needs, to give you value, to somehow make yourself right with God. And these can be both external and internal things. We can make good things God things. We can make idols out of our family and our children. How we treat them. Are they the little gods that run our home? If our children grow up and they are well-rounded and they make right decisions and they do well at school, do we suddenly find our value in that? Because my kids are okay, therefore I'm all right. They are my value. Do we find some sort of salvation? As long as they grow up well and healthy, I've done all right. I can be sad. I am, I am worth doing everything I can. Our children can become our idols. What about our careers, our jobs or chosen profession, qualifications we seek after, which can be wonderful blessings but also can be idols that we worship. We're willing to sacrifice when we're willing to sacrifice relationships, we're willing to sacrifice time, we're willing to sacrifice sleep just to achieve the next rung on the ladder. And because I've achieved the next rung on the ladder, because I've made it, I've become qualified, I've got to this position, I've got that promotion, I've got that bonus, I'm suddenly worth something. I'm suddenly valuable to people around me. I find value in myself. I'm suddenly acceptable to God in those ways. What about our kind of homes and possessions? If we manage to live in the right area, with the right nice home, in the right school catchment, and the right remodeling and extension with the good car and the holidays we go into, suddenly I'm, I'm acceptable among my peer group. This is what I want. If I have the next gadget or the next television or whatever it is, we suddenly make these or others. This is what we pursue. This is what we go after. This is what we spend our time thinking and working towards the next thing. I want to buy the next thing. I need to earn the money to buy the next thing. Do the overtime to get it. These are things that we make idols for ourselves and we put our hope and our trust in those things. We also do things to try and connect ourselves to God. We make idols out of things we do which are kind of Christian virtues, but we can make them things that we, um, we put our hope and trust in. Good works, serving, you know, serving one another, serving in the church. Because I do that, I'm now more acceptable to God. I, I can stand shoulder to shoulder with my brothers and sisters here because I'm on a rota. And if I'm really godly, I'll get on too. And then I serve people and I work at that. And that somehow makes me accept that I can come and be part of this family because I contribute to that. Because we give financially, therefore somehow I am right and I'm better than those who don't or don't give as much as me or don't give as sacrificially as me. We can make these kind of the idols of our life and therefore we are more acceptable to God as a result. What about church attendance? I'm here every Sunday, not like those slackers who miss to go off and do other things, who can't be bothered to get out of bed, turn up late. I'm here every week and I sit at the front. I must be better than everybody else. I must be more acceptable to God. And if I'm really super holy, I go to the prayer meeting as well. And because of that, I'm a super uber Christian and God must love me more than others 
and that's where I get my value and my worth in them. And all of those things are good things, nothing wrong with any of those, but when they become the ones we go after, the ones we seek, the idols that we worship, we feel like we become more right with God. We feel like we earn something, we gain value in that way, and none of that is true. In fact, it could all be further from the truth. We're to worship the right God the right way, and none of those count. The second thing I want to look at is we are to worship God the right way. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus, who we looked at last week, was the one true God, and he's having a chat with a lady at the well. And what starts with a drink, offer of a drink, becomes a theological conversation. You can go and have a little look it up. And Jesus, as a Jew, is talking to this woman, and she is a Samaritan, which were looked down on by Jews. And there was a theological kind of reason behind this. And the Jews, they worshipped in Jerusalem, and they worshipped the temple that was sort of started by David, finished by his son Solomon, while the Samaritans only believed kind of the first part of our Old Testament, and they believed there was another mountain that that, um, they could worship on because it was to do with Abraham. And so there's this theological debate comes up. And Jesus points out to the lady that actually, in the end, both places will become obsolete. The mountain in Jerusalem and the mountain that Samaritans worshipped because he said actually a time is coming referring to his own death and resurrection, where there'll be true worshippers and they will worship God in spirit and truth. That's how we're going to do it. He says God is spirit. That's how he describes him. This means he's invisible. He's divine. He's beyond us. That's what this God is like. But he has chosen to reveal himself in Christ. Jesus is the image of that invisible God. And he says, you're going to worship me in spirit and in truth. Two inseparable things there. The truth we know is Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is revealed to us in his word, the Bible. We read that. We have the truth in there, which points us to Jesus, teaches us about Jesus. And the, um, the Spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so we are to be men and women full of the Spirit and know the truth of God revealed into him in his word, which points to the truth of Jesus Christ. The old way of worshipping was bound up in the temple and the tabernacles and the sacrifices, along with things that we do now, songs of the Psalms and giving um, and serving. But there is a new way that has come that we are as believers that we are to pursue. We're not to pursue created things. We're not to pursue things or look to them to get them get us closer to God. We are to pursue God by spirit and in truth. We are to be men and women full of the Holy Spirit. We're men and women who are praying for one another to be full of the Spirit, praying for ourselves to be full of the Holy Spirit. Just like the the Spirit fell at the beginning of the church on Pentecost and everything changed, Jesus' ascension, he sent the Spirit. The church was birthed. If we read through the book of Acts, we find that the church is a church of the Holy Spirit, coming, filling men and women, empowering them for life and service. We also be to men and women who know the truth. We're to know the truth. We're meant to be men and women of the word who read our Bibles, who study it, who understand it, who make a regular diet of getting into it day after day, week after week, learning from it, growing from it, and through that it reveals to us the one true God, Jesus Christ. And then from that we can serve and we can sing and we can praise and we can give and do all those wonderful things. 
But that is how we are to live. That is how we worship the right God the right way. Be men and women of spirit and truth. So I've got a few questions for you to consider this morning and maybe chat about in life group this week. Do you know the right God? Do you know the right God? Which was commandment number one we looked at last week. Do you know Jesus Christ for yourself? Have you made that commitment to him and to him alone? If you are not a believer here, you haven't done that. (laughs) You haven't done that. And I encourage you to do that. Jesus Christ was God who came to earth, lived as a man. Fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life. He didn't break any of these commandments. We say sinless is kind of our way of describing it. He then died on a cross in our place because we deserve the punishment for all the sin we, co- we committed. He took our place. He then rose bodily victorious from death and now rules and reigns forever and one day will return to judge all mankind. And we are to respond to that in faith. We're to recognize that we are sinners. We've fallen short of God's glory, that we need a Savior. Because as we look at these laws, we suddenly realize we can't keep them. (laughs) It's impossible. So we need some help. We need the help from the one person who could keep them, Jesus. And we put our faith and trust in him. And as a result of that, we receive his righteousness. We receive his holiness. You can be holy like God is holy, not because you've earned it, but because you have received it by faith. And that is what we are to do. And if you are not a believer here, you need to respond in faith. If you are a believer here, you need to make sure you're believing and following the right God. (laughs) Don't get skewed off with that, gee, I I need to follow Jesus, but I also need to make sure I've got all these other things in place to be acceptable to him. As long as I'm doing this and doing that, I become acceptable. No, it's Jesus plus nothing, what it means. Don't add to him. Don't make an idol beside him to compete with him. Don't put something else there as well to say, actually, I'll add this. And if I do this as well, if my, you know, my kids are growing up well, if everything in my life is perfect, then with Jesus, everything's all right. That's not how it works. Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that one-off um, flooding of God into your life? That can happen at conversion or after conversion. Have you had people pray with you and see that happen? Have you had manifestations of that in speaking in tongues and prophesying and seeing kind of God's gifts flow out of you? If you have, do you daily ask God to fill you with his spirit? You take a moment to stop, sit down, kneel down, whatever it is, and say, Jesus, fill me with your spirit today that I might honor and glorify you, that I might become more and more like you. We're commanding Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit and keep being filled daily, weekly, monthly, every time. Do you even know how to do that? Have you ever had someone pray with you? Have you ever had someone talk to you? Okay, let's, let's do this. Let's just engage with, some, with God and pray together. And the last one, how do you worship the right God the right way? What does your daily devotional life look like do you have can you answer that question do you have something in place this is what i do this is how i i work this this is what kind of my life looks like at the moment i'm reading through the book of isaiah i've got one of those scripture journals so i can write all over it and i'm just trying to slowly work through isaiah i've got a commentary kind of to help me so that's how i'm trying to get into god's word i've got a journal that i write in and i write my prayers down because my mind wanders <laughs> So writing it down can help me. 
And then I've got a bunch of things I just try and pray into daily. Pray for my family. Pray for my wider family. Pray for the leadership of the church. Pray for you as a church kind of over the days. Pray for wider leadership in government and just they need our prayers. I, keep, I try and do those things. What are you doing? How are you engaging with God? How are you doing? Why don't you take some time in life group this week to share with one another, talk about it, encourage one another so that we might be the people of God who not only worship the right God but do it the right way. We're going to stop now. My time is up. So do you want to stand and finish? Can we have the band back up? I'm just going to pray to finish. Do you want to just close your eyes? First of all, I just want to talk to you here who don't even know the right God. You, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why you, you've been brought here. Someone dragged you or you've come of your own volition. It's lovely to have you with us. We love you being here. But I just want to commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one true God. He loves you with a passion. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can bring you into a family and give you meaning and purpose that doesn't just go beyond this, uh, not just this life, beyond. He's the only one who can deal with the, the things you've done. And if you don't know him, I want you to put your faith and trust in him, him alone. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. If you want to grab someone you came with, talk to him, that's good too. But we'd love to do that. For those of you who do know Jesus here, I'm just going to lead us in a moment of prayer. Maybe you want to close your eyes, open your hands, and say, God, we want to start by recognizing that you are the one true God. <laughs> we want to say we want to have no other gods before you. You are it and it alone, Lord Jesus. And not only do we want to worship you, we want to worship you the right way. Lord God, I pray you forgive us where we put things alongside you. Even in the place of you where we've pursued other things to give us value, to give us hope, to save us. Where we've created idols in our own heart that if we do this, somehow we'll be more acceptable to you. Somehow we will connect with you better. God, forgive us for those. If you know what they are and you just, they're being reminded, just name them before God and tear them down and say, God, forgive me for that. Forgive me for that. Look, God, we ask you to give us grace as we walk from here to identify things in our life that we've lived for, that we've put our hope and trust in. Help us to identify them and to put them in their right place. Many of them are good things, but let's not make them God things. And Lord God, I ask now that we want to worship you in spirit and truth. We want to be those people. Lord, I pray you fill us with your Holy Spirit now, each one of us, that we may be full to the measure of you, Lord Jesus, that we may have a fresh revelation and understanding of you. Lord Jesus, we need you. We want you. God, we ask you to reveal your truth to us. As we sing songs based on your word, God, we pray you would open our eyes to see you again afresh. That we would know your truth as we study our Bibles and we just read them and talk about them and pray into them. God, we ask you would bring fresh revelation for us. That we day by day would become more and more like you. Lord Jesus, let us not put our tra- trust in things, in places, in stuff. 
but only in you alone, Lord Jesus. We thank you that wherever we go and whatever we do this week, you are with us. And we can call on you and say, help us. Fill us with your spirit. Lead us. Guide us. Lord Jesus, let us go from this place full of you to show others your good news, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. God's people said...